People see me and they see the suit and they go, you're not fooling anyone. They know I'm rock and roll through and through. But uh, you know that old thing, live fast, die young? Not my way. Live fast, sure, live too bloody fast sometimes. But uh, die young, die old. That's the way. Not orthodox, you know. I don't live by the rules. If you were to ask me to name three geniuses, I probably wouldn't say Einstein, Newton. I'd go Milligan, Cleese, Everett, Sessions. <laughs> Folks, welcome back to Michael and Us. You know, we like to get political on this show a little bit. Um, this week, we're exploring some territory that I think is very dear, but also kind of a sore spot for both Will and I. And- oh, are you offended? <laughs> Did I offend you? Also, after uh, Will's widely praised uh, Richard Dawkins impression last week, we wanted to have another opportunity for him to uh, do another great impression, this time of uh, Ricky Gervais. It sounds pretty much the same as the Richard Dawkins impression, I gotta say. Shout out to the one guy on Twitter who said he liked my impression and he said Luke was wrong. Uh, (laughs) Thanks. One by one, the the army is growing. (laughs) So one of the hot topics these days has been for those, I guess, who consider themselves uh, right of center, they feel like they're being deplatformed in the media. They feel they don't have enough spaces to get their message across and they have to create new spaces for themselves, the intellectual dark web, for example. And, you know, even people who write for papers like the New York Times feel that their power is being taken away from them. And in Canada, when somebody like Sachi Cool came onto the scene and kind of broke out in a big way, I think one of the sort of refreshing things about her to people was that she would kind of go on TVO's The Agenda and kind of, you know, roll her eyes at John Kay. Mm-hmm. To those who are American listeners, they may not know that John Kay is kind of an odious yeah, right, just like right of center. any humorless right of center guy that would write for like the atlantic or something he's kind of like uh canada's jonathan chait but not as good i mean i i i shudder to hear the sentence uh, sentence containing the words jonathan chait and good but i guess one of the things about k is that he actually comes from like unlike chait he comes from like a full-on conservative background mm-hmm. if you go back 10 years there's some really gruesome stuff but like he chait he's one of those you know free speech yeah uh, oh, warriors God. yeah Political correctness is run amok, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, People like John Kay, they're complaining more and more about being silenced and political correctness, partly because they really do feel, you know, their influence is waning a little bit. They're being beaten back. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, that is one of the ways to explain this contradiction, which, of course, people have been gleefully pointing out over the last week after this ridiculous... Uh, I guess it was the New York Times, this piece about the intellectual dark web that you allude to, right? Right, by very wise. Yeah, the intellectual dark web that that includes things that are too dark for the mainstream media, but are somehow routinely platformed in like these multinational, you know, mega media companies. You know, it's sort of the humorless baby boomer Gen Xer equivalent of saying like, 
I'm a nerd who's really into, you know, the biggest movies of 2011 or whatever. But, you know, it's easy to forget that, you know, when somebody like Sachi Cool went on TV and rolled her eyes at John Kay, we hadn't seen a lot of that in Canada before that. I mean, there really was sort of a conspiracy of silence that protected people like or insulated people like John Kay from criticism. Which is an air of respectability. Yeah, or like, kind of like of respectability. you know, readers already didn't particularly care about his opinion. So the people who were paying attention were kind of media people. And because the industry is small, nobody wants to alienate anyone in it. But now everyone makes fun of John Kay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he went, I guess, in the span of about 18 months from being, yeah, someone who was, I mean, sort of, sort of off limits in a way to being somebody that other people with big media platforms would, you know, kind of openly have a go at him. And so now John Kay uh, writes article after article about the Twitter mob. He and, tweets and about, how... he tweets and he tweets shit about, like, did you, what was this one a couple weeks ago about how, um oh, yeah, you know, I send my kids to private school because I want them to learn, you know, the ABCs, not, you know, whatever the latest, you know, oisy design, political correctness, you know, agitprop is. Oh, are you offended? You know, I offend you. <laughs> but I was going to say, like, I think that this kind of contradiction between people say there it's the intellectual dark web that you can read about, you know, in the biggest newspapers in the world. You know, the way you kind of reconcile that, because it is a genuine contradiction, a very facile and obviously stupid one, you know, is that you have a generation of kind of media people who are wedded to certain orthodoxies and who are being asked to share space with different kinds of people than they had to share space with before and frankly different kinds of opinions and are suddenly you know for people who um naming no names here but you know who build up you know their entire kind of professional and personal identity around that you know they are the guardians of something called the discourse you know mm -hmm. they they are the stewards of some august thing that can be called the national conversation mm -hmm. and all of a sudden somebody is uh making fun of them on twitter over jonathan chait incidentally got very mad at me over like i was going back to it today it's like a year or two years ago now or something because I remember that he was mad at me for something, but I couldn't quite remember what the joke was. And I thought mm -hmm. in retrospect, maybe I was making the joke a little more benign than it was. Mm -hmm. And I was, so I, I searched it ready to be embarrassed. The, tell me, tell me I'm wrong, but I think this is the most tepid. It's actually such a normie dig. I feel a little embarrassed about it. I said, uh, in response to one of his stupid columns about, you know, mm -hmm. Marxism or whatever shit, I was like, how much money would I have to pay you to change your name to Alexis to hot takeville? Right. And his and his reply was like, mm, despite your capacity for devising mean names for writers you don't like, I think I'll have to mute you huh. now. So or much something. for the tolerant laugh. Yeah, basically. And like the thing is, I think that he actually was kind of genuinely a little bit bothered by it. And mm. just I think there's a generation of media commentators where they're so used to the default posture of kind of the public being one of deference mm -hmm. and because of social media and also just because there's a generational and a sort of generalized ideological shift going on all of a sudden there's this platform where people just don't have to be deferential to them at all and all of a sudden these things that they kind of took for granted are being challenged and i think a lot of them don't really like that and mm -hmm. so what you get is this kind of extremely reactionary backlash where the new thing is to pretend that you are you know you're a brave truth teller fighting the kind of you know the social engineers and the 
you know, this is why Jordan Peterson is so popular. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're fighting the the liberal metropolitans and all their you know radical social engineering and stuff. Where really, what the issue is is that you just don't like people being, you know, mostly a little bit rude to you on Twitter.com. And you know, taking it to uh, the sphere of show business or comedy. <laughs> There used to be a time when a guy could just go on TV and host the Golden Globes (laughs) and, you know, it would be reviewed in the major, uh, you know, Entertainment Weekly or the New York Times. And then that would be the consensus. But then what happened was social media started and people were live tweeting this stuff beat by beat. Mm -hmm. And they were tweeting at these hosts mm-hmm. and saying things that were perhaps not very nice to the hosts. Yeah, and then those tweets were getting picked up and aggregated by these new vanguards of cultural Marxism like BuzzFeed and <laughs> Jezebel and, you know, and it's like, what's a what's a millionaire comedian to do? Yeah, what happens when, as as a certain comedian calls it, the Twitter police, what <laughs> happens when they get at you? Well, the only thing you can really do is go on your big Netflix comedy special <laughs> and kind of aggregate all the online beefs you've ever had in a 78-minute set. And so that's what we watched today, uh, Ricky Gervais' Humanity. Hello, how are you doing? Calm down, can't shut the fuck up. What a lovely welcome. Just for that, I'm going to try my hardest tonight. I know you're thinking, you're thinking, Rick, relax. We've already had our money's worth just seeing you. <laughs> what? You're a legend. Shut up. Why is he? I'm just an ordinary guy going around talking to people. Sort of like Jesus. But better. Well, I've actually turned up. So. Welcome to my new show, Humanity. I don't know why I called it that. I'm not a big fan. He's an observational comedian. How can he relate to ordinary scum? I mean, yeah, we kind of... Uh, I've been pushing a Star Wars episode for some time, and Will Will remains, uh, I think, tacitly in support, but when, when the moment comes, he's somehow never... Well, I'm kind of I'm kind of thrown because I kind of liked the last Star Star Wars movie. I, which... I really hated it. Yeah. So, but I, but, but see, I think I mean, that the, could be interesting. It could be interesting, but I, I hate the institution of Star mm-hmm. Wars. But I think the biggest problem is I'm not sure I really want to sit through this two and a half hour movie again four months after seeing it. I think the biggest problem is that there hasn't been... Like, when is IG-88 going to get his own movie? <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know, I'm sick of waiting. Did, did you hear this week they announced that one of the networks is has commissioned a pilot for the early years of Alfred the Butler? And we're going to find out how Alfred the Butler came to be. And that's really exciting because it's so far removed from Batman. Because there's not even any gadgets or anything. Yeah, Batman, the thing that we care about, is not in it. <laughs> oh my god. It's only about his butler. Oh my god, our culture is a sewer. Anyway, um... well, So getting back to Ricky Gervais, I mean, Ricky Gervais, I think, is somebody who is very important to the two of us. Oh my god, so much. The Office. Just like Michael Moore, some of our earliest conversations probably it, it, had to do with Ricky Gervais. Yeah. And Almost I, um, like 10 years ago, because yeah. that's how long we've known each other now, which is crazy. He is one of the first things we bonded over, and The Office, the British office, is in the upper echelon of, like... Well, things. Top, yeah, <laughs> top five things I like. Yeah. I think I've seen it. I've seen the whole run of the show ten times at least. Oh, man. It's one of those shows where every single moment is a classic. Yeah. I can just say any line. I don't know if there's an off moment in the entire show. Yeah. 
you know, I don't, I don't know how many Americans kind of, you know, who, again, as I often joke, probably comprise the majority of our listeners. I don't know how many of them sort of came in with the American office, which is also good, but it's, it's mm-hmm. not as good as the British office. And of course, it also has like the much more traditional serialized American format. The British office, one of the reasons why it's such a gem it's because only 12 episodes plus a special. Mm-hmm. And they took, Ricky Gervais and his co-writer Stephen Merchant took, I mean, three months to write 20 minutes of script or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was meticulously done. It's really well acted. I mean, God, we like, I mean, we're at risk of just gushing over The Office because that's a lot more fun than talking about the stand-up special we just watched. But, you know, Will and I were, we'll talk more about The Office as we talk about the special. But I think the point is that Ricky Gervais is, is someone that, we are not unsympathetic to. I mean, I think it's not like with Michael Moore, patron saint of the podcast, friend of the show, who, you know, somebody that we both really liked in 2003, and now, you know, we're like, okay, that was dumb. I mean, after we finished the special as an antidote, as a healing bomb, we watched about four minutes of clips from The Office, and it's Mm -hmm. so good. Even Mm -hmm. if I've seen it a hundred times, I still know the lines, it's still funny. You know, his performance is so on point, and throughout this special that we watched today, he'll say words and phrases that just take me back to him as David Brent. And it's a disquieting experience, frankly. Yeah. And in in addition to The Office, you know, I should say, he also did Extras, which is a show that I really like. And I listened to every single one of the podcasts he did, which aren't quite as good as the XFM radio shows that he did, um, which there are far more of, which, I mean, I used to listen to that. I mean, there were years where I listened to that basically every night before bed. Now, I was never into the XFM radio shows. I mean, you, I guess, probably listened to it all from the beginning where you kind of heard all of these jokes develop over time. You heard the Carl Pilkington persona, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, evolve and reveal mm-hmm. itself. I only kind of caught up with that whole Carl Pilkington side of his career a little later when it was already famous, and I frankly didn't like it. And it, when I saw it, it suggested a darker side or a side of Ricky Gervais's comedy that I didn't like, which was him kind of just laughing at this idiot. Right. So, you know, in a way, there's a similar trajectory with kind of that part of his career as kind of um, this overall one we're going to talk about, which is that, you know, when the Carl Pilkington thing became famous, it was through the podcast Mm. and if you listen to the podcast and you're familiar with the the radio show the podcasts are not very funny because they're essentially just recycled material from the show but also more importantly their material when Mm. when it happened on the show it wasn't like a gag or a gimmick Mm -hmm. it's literally ricky gervais and stephen merchant hosted a radio show on a sort of alts you know london music station ricky gervais was just starting to get famous enough i think they had a brief stint in the 90s but i think by the time they got it started up again they were just doing the office Mm -hmm. he was just famous enough for him to say i'm not going to operate like the little board i want a producer and they happened to get this guy carl pilkington and so in kind of first season of that he barely says anything like he you know every so often he's kind of an almost like a gag they bring in Mm -hmm. but he started kind of saying more stuff and he basically became the the focus of the show And I think if you kind of experienced it that way, you'll find Carl Pilkington funny. Mm -hmm. But the podcast, which is, I assume, where you kind of came in, they're not funny. Yeah. Um, They're not funny for the the reason that you you suggested, but also they're not funny because it's just like fan fiction about the... Mm -hmm. the XFM shows. Mm -hmm. On the XFM show, uh, I mean, you were telling me that 
Gervais came from kind of a working class upbringing on the radio show. He seemed very self-effacing, very humble, very uncomfortable with the idea of fame. Mm -hmm. That's not the Ricky Gervais we see in this special. He's become, you know, dare I say, a weirdly Trumpian figure. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe that's kind of like uh, Godwin's law to say that now. But he has that kind of humble, braggy worship of power. Over and over again, he talks in the special... wealth. Yeah, an excess. Yeah. Oh, um. You know, people say, "Oh, oh, uh, Ricky, you're rich, and I am." Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he knows that people like it if you acknowledge sort of how rich you are and sort of make a joke out of it. But he doesn't realize that that you're supposed to do that in a self-effacing way yeah. to get yourself on the level of the it's, audience. It's not self-effacing. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, and that's what's kind of sad about this. I guess is like. On the XFM shows, I did feel he was very earnest and uncomfortable with fame. In fact, you know, one of the things that was so great about that show was how kind of humanizing it was because he talked a lot about kind of early experiences of being famous. I mean, there's a scene they recreated in Extras as a joke when, do you remember the scene where he's recognized by a homeless guy? Yeah. So like that actually happened. There was a homeless guy that, you know, watched The Office or something. I don't even remember what the content of the story was, but it was just... It was these weird moments for somebody who was, you know, very working class mm-hmm. growing up and who whose family, I think, did struggle somewhat, but who were all extremely funny people. And, you know, I think that, you know, what you essentially have now is just sort of a kind of humorless middle-aged guy that mistakes his, I don't know, his humorless middle-agedness for yeah. kind of iconoclasm and profundity. And it's really annoying. Well, the first big section of this special is him talking about his last appearance at the Golden Globes, which was probably his least well-received, I guess. I mean, another mark of, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, another mark of bad comedy or bad anything is when the thing is just solipsistic. I mean, he's just talking about this thing happened to me and like Ricky Gervais is big enough that he can be the subject of his own comedy. Yeah. Not a good sign. Most of it is about why his set at the Golden Globes was funny and why it wasn't actually offensive. Yeah. And most of it is centered around this joke he made about Caitlyn Jenner. Mm-hmm. He, ma- he made a joke about, you know, Caitlyn Jenner getting into a car accident and Caitlyn Jenner is doing great things for uh, the trans community, but not for woman drivers. Mm-hmm. And, well, and he, and he dead named her. Right? And he dead named her. Yeah. So he goes on and on about dead naming, kind of trying to have it both ways, talking about, oh, I'm progressive, you know, I, I, I wouldn't do yeah. that. But of course, <laughs> you know, he dead names her 20 times. Mm. Uh, well, and then he repeats the joke that offended people, which was which had something to do with how he identifies as a chimp. Right. Uh, and he makes a lot of jokes about Caitlyn Jenner's penis. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. I think the biggest problem more than anything about his set is that there's no politics to it. There's no worldview to it. He believes in outrage and offense for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah, I mean, the, the provocations are not targeted in anything worthy. In fact, I feel as if his set almost implicitly concedes its own kind of impotency with so many of the bits, the way he introduces them is by saying that, you know, oh, I went on Jimmy Fallon and I said this and then... People you know, loved it. Everyone laughed. Yeah, and it was <laughs> wonderful. And then, you know, and then, yeah, you know, Nutter's on Twitter and he's like, well, actually it was just one. And then he'll talk about... You know, somebody said something maybe kind of dumb and then they had 23 followers. And it's like, 
Why do you give a shit? He wants like, you to know how offended people were, how <laughs> outraged people were. But actually, most people weren't offended. It was just one or two people who were offended. And, and they, they really didn't. Actually, I found it funny. I found it pretty funny that they were offended. In fact, here's what they said. Here's what they said. Can you believe this? Can you believe what this person said? Oh, and I said this to them. And then they said this. And then I said this back to them. Like, oh, you believe in God? Oh, oh, I bet you believe in a you know virgin birth, oxymoron much. You know, a lot of people believe that this show is scripted and, and you know, it's I, I assure you it's not. Um So, you know, he dissects all of these jokes that he told about Caitlyn Jenner and he keeps going on and on about why. Well, actually, I was making a joke about how a rich person can get away with anything. And he keeps trying to say over and over again that actually he's on the right side of every issue. But the problem isn't that the jokes are in poor taste. The problem is that there's no worldview unifying these jokes. Yeah. There's no reason to tell all of these jokes in the order. Pro- provocation and like, and we should say like provocation of a very like kind of mild and irrelevant sort. You know, you don't have to be a famous rich comedian to have dumb people in your menchies. You know, you Mm -hmm. post something and then somebody replies with something that's kind of irrelevant or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's kind of experienced that. But most of us do not then go Mm -hmm. and do a Netflix special that's Mm -hmm. entirely built around those things. Mm -hmm. Provocation of that extremely impotent and irrelevant kind becomes an end in itself Mm -hmm. in this kind of humor. And as Will says, like, uh, there's no real politics conveyed in this. The extent of Ricky Gervais's politics are that there's no God and you shouldn't be cruel to animals, which mm-hmm. are two sentiments that I basically agree with in the most kind of abstract sense. But I don't, I don't think, I mean, pr- I mean particularly with, you know, the, the God thing, I mean, I think that, um, I don't want to knock us off course too much. And of course we did Richard Dawkins and, uh, and co last week, but I mean, I've always felt that one of the reasons why the sort of internet atheism is so popular and frankly one of the reasons why it's such an easy journey from like posting about, you know, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens in 2006 to being like a psychopath alt-right person is because it just indulges that thing in all of us where we like to tut-tut and talk down to Mm -hmm. people. And I mean, you know, the thing that he says in this about how oh you oh you believe that the earth is flat well you can believe that but you don't you don't get you can have your own opinion but you can't have your own facts oh, the most tired I mean line. it's basically like the facts don't care about your feelings it's basically Ben Shapiro shit and again in the abstract I mean that's true but I've always felt that that you know move that so many people that were kind of that you know their formative beliefs were created through internet atheism. It really, like, it doesn't really go much beyond that. It's just about, uh, I have the good facts, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it's it's a license to be smug. And, yeah, like, uh, once you disprove God, then then what? Right, I mean, that, yeah, like, that's a good I question. Guess, I guess they'll vote Democrat? Well, and we, ta- and we <laughs> talked about this when we did Religulous, right? I mean, so much of that, that whole thing, it's, it's made socially acceptable by the fact that there was like a republic a christian republican in the white house so what you you were actually attacking george bush by making fun of these guys at a truck stop or whatever but basically it's just metropolitan it's like just withering metropolitan disdain for the proles that you've been given Mm -hmm. license to you know yeah this special is such a throwback in that way isn't it it really took me back to like 2006 yeah because like the christian right isn't really the same boogeyman that it was then 
there's an absolutely brutal uh, section in that religious bit where he talks about, you know, oh, what if I died and I was meeting uh, a god <laughs> at the pearly gates? I'd say, oh, oh, um, if Satan is real, why not kill him? <laughs> And I mean, you know, I'm I'm no theologian, but I feel like that question has been at least addressed <laughs> through 2,000 years of scholarship. I don't think Gervais has really read his Aquinas or his Augustine. <laughs> that would just be my hunch. Yeah. Oh, uh, could God make a hot dog so big that even he couldn't eat it? That's a little free material for you, Ricky. But again, that's what the world is like. People take everything personally. I think the world revolves around them, right? Particularly on Twitter, right? I don't know. I'm not tweeting anyone, I'm just tweeting, okay? I don't know who's following me. I've got 12 million followers. I don't know who's following me. They can be following me without me knowing, right? Choose to read my tweet and then take that personally. That's like going into a town square, seeing a big notice board, and there's a notice, guitar lessons, and you go, but I don't fucking want guitar lessons. Actually, I guess Ricky Gervais does have a politics because it's a very Hobbesian politics. <laughs> okay. Don't, don't you think? Wow, I mean, we're getting profound on this one. Well, I mean, he thinks the problem with the world is that now, thanks to social media, everyone has their say. Mm-hmm. And because politicians are desperate to win over the Twitter mob, right. uh, you get things like Brexit. And so yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's the disaster that was, that was actually sort of the only time he injected you know, politics mm-hmm. in any meaningful sense into this. And I'm pretty sure that was the same bit where the final punchline was just like, do you know how fucking stupid, like, most ordinary people are? And yeah. then the audience just applauds, yeah. and that's the joke. And, and no consideration of, like, why are people stupid? Right, I mean, yeah, I mean, God. I mean, I, th- I feel like that's something we've indirectly engaged with, and we got it. We, we really need to do an Idiocracy episode oh, at some point. Oh, yeah. uh, I've actually never, i never seen it. But um, really? we've, we've had yeah. some, we've had some requests. But, um... Yeah, stupidity exists in a vacuum. It's just bestowed by God, and there are no forces that right. create it. One of the reasons why I think it's so easy to for, you know make the journey, or it's been so easy to make the journey from kind of posting on the Richard Dawkins forum in two thousand six to you know the right is that the whole thesis of new atheism in a big way was that there's no such thing as political economy, mm. right? There are the people governed by reason who are the smart ones, and then there's the people governed by unreason who are the religious ones secularize that and you've got kind of the very Sorkin-esque dichotomy between the clever and the and the obtuse and Mm. that's what the divide is in the world and the fact is that is a sort of proto right-wing view because it makes the world the world's just about individuals and Mm. ideas and Mm. ideas don't exist and they're not shaped by a, a social or material reality they just they are just unto the people expressing them so if you can just remove the bad ideas in the stupidity you have good so if you remove religious belief then you have peace in the middle east Mm -hmm. and it's like wow how convenient that we can just ignore like 200 years of imperialism that's that's clearly (laughs) the problem is that the israelis are jewish and and the palestinians richard dawkins uh, you know he i mean god if we if we ever wanted more richard dawkins content he literally did a special called religion the root of all evil question mark right and he talks about the israeli-palestinian conflict and i mean that is his take on it if only they were all atheists Mm. then the this land dispute would solve itself um i don't think a lot of people saw it but i did a a segment uh for al jazeera a while ago about religion which i didn't think they used about 10 seconds of a half an hour interview so i didn't end up sharing it but one of the things i mentioned that that, religion poisons everything One of the things I mentioned That's on, my well, impression of another Brit. Speak, speak, speak of the devil. Hitchens. I mean, one of, one of the points I raised on was when, you know, he was talking about, um, 
you know, he'd actually reported on the conflict in Northern Ireland, the Troubles, as mm. they called it. Like, So he really must or should have known better. But he literally talked about that conflict as a conflict between Catholic and Protestant gangs. Wow. Like, that's how ahistorical that becomes. Anyway, to get back to the, the special, I wasn't sure what you meant before, but uh, no, I think you're right to say Hobbesian because there is something that's very kind of atomizing and individualistic about uh, about this kind of view, and I feel like that's very present throughout this insufferable stand-up special we watched and by the way he ends it by um i guess giving his mission statement which is that we need to uh, have free speech so that we can prod at society's poor spots because only through that will we heal right and what are the poor spots that he prods at in this oh when you think about it isn't he truly heroic for uh making fun of caitlin jenner i mean that that's gonna make all the all the poor trans youth right right uh (laughs) Uh, yeah the joke is gonna give them some peace the joke about transitioning into a chimp or whatever that i identify as a chimp yeah his comedy is helping them through the difficult times and in fact this is something that this bullshit is something that um gary shandling really got, got him with uh if people haven't seen it i highly i think it's kind of a deep cut so i think you need to explain oh, it. i highly 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 recommend this uh pr- like pretty early in the ricky gervais phenomenon like in the mid-2000s gervais had this documentary tv show he was doing uh where he would go around and meet and interview all of his comedy heroes kind of a comedians in cars getting coffee thing except it was very much like him sort of talking to his heroes and trying to get their validation in a way, being right. like, oh, I'm kind of I'm kind of one of you now, eh? Right, right? right? So I think he talked to Christopher Guest and uh, maybe someone else, but the third episode was with Gary Shandling, who just demolished him from beginning to end and talked about, you know, why do you pick this subject matter and you know oh when you're on when you're on stage there's a glimmer in your eye and and i can see you're you're a bad little boy on stage (laughs) and gervais is totally flustered and there were no more episodes after that he only managed three episodes yeah until gary shandling just demolished him on camera and then it was over and you know shandling i think uh was ahead of his time it's just that i could see a certain and i think the audience sees a certain relish in your eyes when you're playing a nazi you're a naughty little boy and you know it and there's that gleam in your eye the uh, the taboo or uncomfortable subjects um that i pick on are to take me somewhere and that is um sort of uh, embarrassment you know um it's what you do and don't say in in um, polite society so it's all about the, the people being uncomfortable is it because with these... you, you you in your life felt repressed and this is a a part of a way to get it out no because people know that that there are certain things that are uncomfortable when when maggie um goes back with the the, the, the black boyfriend mm-hmm. and she's got um uh the the golly there which is from her childhood he knows she's not racist but mm-hmm. of course it's a, it's an awkward moment and it's dealing with that that uncomfortableness it's not mm-hmm. at no point is are we getting a laugh out of um being homophobic or being racist or right. uh, someone else's um disability it it puts you somewhere that you can then explore how would i how would i react to this why are you choosing to explore those uncomfortable moments because it's funny. Because I mean, it's real, funny. But real uncomfortable is moments. That your, is that your sense of humor? Real uncomfortable moments 
are funny in retrospect, yeah. aren't they? When, when you're in the moment, it's awkward. Everyone says, oh, we'll laugh about this later, and you will. I think what we've proven that probably doesn't need to be proved anymore and is indulgent is that comedy uh, that, that we're talking about comes from tragedy and suffering. I, I want to say something else about Gervais and, and how he went from being good to, you know, manifestly objectively not good um which i think is we're, we're gonna i'm gonna read from uh the really excellent brendan james piece in the baffler uh in a bit but there's you know something else that i think needs to be considered here which is really not a political thing at all but which is just the the difference the the, the complicated cultural dynamic that exists between that binds kind of the united states and great britain and the fact that British and American humor are very different, mm. I think British humor tends to be a lot funnier. Um, you know, I'm I'm like, I'm, well, I'm I mean, they also on... gave us Benny Hill and uh, lots of you know lots of garbage. Okay, who do you think's produced more extremely funny comedians per capita? Honestly, I don't even know. I mean, America's uh, America's has a bigger population, and they've given us lots of great stuff. That's over why the years. I said per capita. I don't know if I could answer that question, but I mean, you know, the the thing is, we get the best of it over here. We get Monty Python, we That's get Faulty Towers. But don't you think? Don't you think also that there's just something like to me, like American comedy. I mean, it's just much more American, and it tends more towards the gross out and the slapstick and kind of. I don't know. Maybe it's just a personal taste thing. But big I, slapstick fan over here. I like. I like. You know, the sort of wry, more subtle British stuff. I feel, feel really pretentious saying that, but I mean, I like the fact that almost... I like when Mo hits squarely <laughs> in the face with a wrench. <laughs> Someone slips on a banana peel, and you hear a noise that's like whoop. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's really funny. I like that in uh, in British comedy, it's it's almost always just kind of riddled with this kind of seething class anxiety oh, yeah. because that's yeah. what British society is like. I really appreciate that. And I think that one of the things that, you know, really informs Gervais's early comedy career is that, you know, he was just steeped in the kind of in that tradition, you know. Yeah. And one of the things that really comes through on his XFM show is that just as a working class kid who grew up in Britain, you know, basically in the, you know, 60s and 70s, he like a lot of kids of that generation and that background, everything American was kind of sacred, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that you can kind of pinpoint the moment of Gervais going bad to when he was embraced by Hollywood because that was sort of the highest level of fame you could achieve if you were someone from his background. And if you look at all those things he did when he went to the States, I mean, that awful episode of The Simpsons that he starred in. Did oh, you ever see that? Yeah, I did see it. I don't really remember it it's, that well. It's atrocious. Or... Um, you know, I mean, they tried to turn him into a sort of, like, rom-com actor with things like Ghost Town. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, what were some of the other the things The Invention of Lying. Yeah, which I didn't see. You you reviewed it, I remember. Yeah, but I, it's, you know, it's not that good. I think there was a lot of what he did where it was kind of like, oh, you know, I'm a part of Hollywood now, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and I think, um, I don't know, I don't think that he was as good at doing the American-style humor. I don't think that was the tradition in which... He ever did anything good well i think life's too short which was kind of the last gervais show i ever saw some of them were funny but some of those gratuitous scenes of celebrities coming to his office yeah. like johnny depp and liam neeson to me to me because those are those are funny but they're borderline because there is a bit of just like oh look at who we got to be in our show yeah that that's what it is yeah at one of the commentary conferences some of us put on a little review i was the main thing and i did impressions of the conference coordinator um eric hitchmo and uh he 
he talks like this, and he always says the one thing. He says, I don't agree with that in the workplace. That's just asked them. And um, I did them as famous people, like the conference would go, ladies and gentlemen, Lieutenant Columbo, and I come out in a Mac, and I go, um, yeah, one final thing, my wife loves you, but I don't agree with that in the workplace. That's right. And uh, I did it as um, Basil Forty. I think I mentioned it once, but I got away with it, and I don't agree with that in the workplace. <laughs> and they were cracking up, and he loved it, because it was nothing vicious. You know, some comedians would have picked another stuff, you know, been more nasty. Like he's got a little withered hand, like Jeremy Beadle. I didn't mention it. If maybe we can end on a positive note, I rewatched The Office again pretty recently. And I mean, among the many things it does well is it really perfectly depicts a certain kind of desperation through mm. which so many people live their lives. Yeah. It captures, I think, just the crushingly quotidian nature of sort of work in a post-industrial society. Yeah. The, the meaninglessness you know? of most of it. Mm. And, and the fact that like, it deprives you of even the most basic pleasures and uh, you, you have to live in a hellscape because nobody can afford to live in a major city where there's actually community. So you live in Slough, which is like sort of London, but not really, not actually at all. Yeah. It's just, it's just kind of office parks and, you know, um, you can't really have meaningful relationships with your coworkers because why would you? They're just people in the same predicament as you. You're all kind of thrown together. You and know, also they're your coworkers. Like, li like there's so much at stake if you have a meaningful relationship that's with right. them. Your, your livelihood's at stake. That's right. Even when, you know, there is somebody that matters to you. I mean, as, as the kind of Tim and Dawn relationship mm -hmm illustrates can't even have that i mean both of them are uh just prisoners to kind of the constraints of their own existence and it takes them the entire show to realize like actually no we should we should be together we're making a mistake by denying ourselves this mm -hmm. like that's how crushing this existence is and it breeds people like david brent who yeah. you know david brent's not a bad person but his entire identity mm -hmm is built around the fact that he's just somebody, you know, he's just middle everything, as I think mm. Gervais himself mm. put it, you know, he's middle management, he's middle-aged, he's just sort of middlingly talented at things. He's really got, got not much going on. And now that the camera's there, he's alive because he has an audience to perform to. It's finally given him some meaning and mm. it sparks all of those dreams of stardom that he used to have. But in the universe of The Office, your only value is... The, the function you can serve to your employers and your ability to make money. So Dawn has a dream of becoming an artist, mm -hmm. but she can't make a living off it. So she's discouraged at every step from everyone around her, except him from pursuing that. Yeah. Because if it doesn't make money, if you can't support yourself on it, why do it? Mm -hmm. Even Dawn's relationship, what's his name? Lee. Lee. His his kind of refusal to support her being an artist is partly because, yeah, it's partly for kind of the instrumental, like, economic reason you said. But then there's also that, that bit where he's talking about how, um, you know, yeah, we can move to Florida and you can get a few kitties under your belt, which is great because then my mom could look after them and then you can get, like, a part-time cleaning job or something. Mm. You know, and it's also just that for him, you know, his relationship with her is just purely instrumental. Like, he doesn't actually care about her, mm. you know? And she doesn't love him either no, but, but she's been she's been browbeaten into thinking that this is the best she can possibly accept because for the most part that is the best that people in this world are even offered mm. that's available to them it's a beautiful show mm -hmm. extras which is kind of in between the office and life's too short the the charge you're making it's life too short um the seeds are being planted in extras i think maybe but i was gonna say i mean i think that they 
when I heard the concept of extras for the first time, even though I was at the peak of my Ricky Gervais fandom, I was like, uh, that doesn't sound, you know, it's like, oh, they have a different celebrity every episode. That's going to be silly. Mm. But what extras actually ends up being about is a character who's kind of like David Brent. You know, he's somebody who, you know, is played by Ricky Gervais, is kind of middle-aged and middling and is and, and just wants wants success and feels frustrated by what the world's offered him and, and is an extra and who can never get you know, a speaking role. But what it becomes is, you know, a comment on kind of the meaninglessness of seeking fame for its own sake. Because in the end, he does get famous, but then he's frustrated because he doesn't get famous on his own terms. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have kind of the critical respect, even though he's extremely rich. And, you know, it causes him to kind of destroy, you know, the only meaningful friendship he has or nearly destroy it. And I don't know, it's baffling to me that Ricky Gervais could make something that is so sensitive about status seeking and and things like that and then go on you know 10 10 or 12 years later to make this awful stand-up special we watched well we'll always have paris you know and and i think you have an excerpt from the uh, brendan james article that sums up the predicament i think we'll just uh, we'll just leave you with this here Uh, this was a piece written by brendan james in the baffler uh, back in march and i think it really kind of sums up our thesis uh for the day Um, So this is about midway through the piece. He says, Gervais has morphed into something like the British Carlos Mencia, an irrelevant and mediocre public persona who deludes himself that his shabby material is simply too real for the haters to enjoy. Of course, if he really wanted to offend audiences in 2018, Gervais would immediately convert to evangelical Christianity, mock the (laughs) theory of evolution, and preach original sin. The Madison Square Garden crowd would shit themselves in horror. It's true that people online, and I'm sure some offline, are currently offended by an extended and belabored stretch of his new stand-up where he mocks Caitlyn Jenner, gratuitously refers to her old identity, and does a bit about how he's decided to transition to being a chimp. Whether or not you subscribe to the idea that comedy should categorically never punch down, I don't. We can all agree that this material is objectively for idiots and people over 50 who think it's daring and brave to flout quote-unquote political correctness. This role of pedantic free speech warrior is where most comedians end up once they run out of steam but retain a platform. Indeed, Gervais, with all the composure of an obsessive Reddit guy or Infowars crank, would probably submit that you, me, and anyone else who does not lavish praise on his wispy portfolio since extras are, that's right, too easily offended. He would insist, actually, that he doesn't even care about the backlash and finds it funny and conclude with an unattributed quote he found on Goodreads that says something moronic like, free speech is like oxygen, you don't need it until you have it. Now watch this drive. Goodbye.